Welcome back to CannaWeek, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we bring you the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impacts these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. We have two guests with us today. The first is CEO of Zalira Therapeutics, a leading global therapeutic medicinal cannabis company. Please welcome Dr. Adamosu. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Our next is our chief knowledge officer here at New Frontier Data. Welcome back, John Kagia. Pleasure to be here. Well, these two gentlemen both were um, able to participate on our global cannabis town hall we had on April 2nd. Recordings are available on newfrontierdata.com. You can check out Dr. Adamosu's segment on the North American region. And then John is on the marathon throughout the whole day. You'll see him in every segment. Um, So let's get started. Last week, the marijuana moment reported that Fed Sue Company overclaims its CBD products can treat cancer. Um, Until now, the FTC and FDA have only been submitting warning letters to these companies, and now they're really cracking down. And they said that this suit will be the first of many if people don't start to comply. Um, I'm going to start with John, actually. How do you think this increased scrutiny will impact the medicinal cannabis industry? Well, in some respects, it's like they say, uh, any news is good news. Uh, Any any media coverage is good uh, good coverage. Uh, because this is going to really um, focus a lot of attention on one of the major tensions that I think has plagued um, the advancement of medical cannabis research in the country. Now, while we obviously uh, would not endorse uh, any companies making unverified products, there's really some, raised some really uh, important questions about the urgency for there to be not just national but global investment in advancing uh, our research into cannabis given, one, the number of patients who are using cannabis medicinally. So, um, you know, based on our research, over 90% of patients say that, um, um, of medical cannabis patients report that the use of cannabis has has materially improved their condition. And so, um, because of all the federal scheduling of cannabis, because of the, the um, chokehold or the, the, the um, slowing of the ability for research to be done in the space, um, it's created this tension where there's a lot of patients who are using it, a lot of physicians who are recommending it, um, but uh, much slower advancement in the science to support uh, the sort of efficacy in, in the cases of the most effective. So, you know, th- this challenge, uh, this lawsuit is going to begin, uh, I think, to, to draw a lot of scrutiny around um, how medical cannabis is being used. Uh, but ultimately, we think that one of the things that's going to go, going to help unleash is more substantial investment into accelerating the, the research to, to be able to validate the claims uh, that a lot of patients and, and physicians have been reporting uh, as their health outcomes. Got it. Now, Dr. Adamosu, in your experience, do you find the medical community open to accepting cannabis-based treatments as a viable alternative to traditional pharmaceuticals? Uh, thank you once again for having me to uh, to speak here at Canada Week. Uh, I, I'll tell you very categorically and very emphatically that the essence of that lawsuit and that conversation really opens the doors for us to really have the conversation we've been wanting to have, which is why is cannabis still on the you know scheduled list, or why are we not able to access uh, cannabis for research? Well, we understand all the the legal and regulatory um, um, 
constraints and challenges. But let's speak about what we can do. Uh, because of COVID-19, for example, several states have, you know, we've gone from cannabis seen as an illegal to an essential. And in Pennsylvania, where I live, we have, uh, we have just copious amounts of data that suggests that just the inflow and the conversion from um, a traditional medicine. In fact, uh, New Frontier published a few years ago the, the projected conversion of about $4.9 billion in 2019 was projected to be substituted from traditional medicine to some type of a ca uh, cannabis or cannabinoid-based therapies. These are real dollars. These are real people. These are real human beings and patients at the heart of it. And if truly uh, one of the, uh, at the core of what we do in medicine is to first do no harm. The question I always ask myself is, if there was a time I did not know better, but now I do, what then am I compelled to do as my next step? So these types of lawsuits where the FDA now is coming in and, 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 or, and saying, hey, we're going to prosecute wrongful claims. Legally, yes, they have a right to. But let's look at it much more on a global perspective. People are making these substitutions. Isn't it better if they are well-guided, if they can be done within the well-established regulatory space? Right now, we are enjoying what I call a legal and regulatory arbitrage. But Am I comfortable competing and playing in the, in the open space and, and having that much more open to everybody? Yes. At Zalira, for example, in the parlance of, um, of, uh, of, the, of the cannabis space, we don't grow. We don't own any licenses. We don't process. We don't uh, dispense uh, cannabis-based products. But we are a quintessential biotech company that is focused on drug development from a natural compound, which is cannabinoids. Mind you, dear friends, by the way, more than 80% of the drugs that are in the market today were derived from a natural compound. So even the hydrochloroquine that people were talking about for COVID for a long time was derived from a natural compound. So is it really conceivable? And are we living in the time where we should have been where the most, the natural compound with the most documented use for, with safety and efficacy is cannabis. So if you ask me, it seems we're having a conversation we should have had. But then again, I appreciate the fact that I'm, I'm comfortable saying, yes, people are making that conversion. We should open up research very clearly. And there's a way to do it even within the, in the current climate. We should encourage data sharing, data collection and data sharing, and we should be able to validate all of those and use them properly. And I think that's a way forward. Well, how do you see these relationships then evolving in the future between traditional pharmaceuticals and, uh, and cannabis treatments? Uh, I like to say watch the space, right? So recently, Zalira, for example, we, we, we published the results from our first in class, first ever insomnia uh, a study using a, a cannabinoid product that is double-blinded, placebo-controlled, crossover design. So speaking the language that the pharmaceutical industry understands, we are now able to do the same type of research for which, you know, the world will be like, oh yeah, you know what, I can get behind that product. It's gone through a, you know, clinical trial the way we understand it. 
Now we're doing that, right? So we're bridging the the the, the cannabis culture, which kind of was born from let's call it what it is, right? You know, you find it to be very straightforward. It was born from a combination of of advocates, rebellion, uh, you know, strong-headed scientific uh, people like uh, Raphael Mishalem, and just a bunch of just strong will. And, you know, mothers and parents, you know, with, with sick children who said, you know, we will not give up till this happens. Now we're bringing that, and then we, it sort of backed in when state by state started approving licenses, you know, uh, safe, uh, you know, safe harbor programs, turning into licensures. It was one at the ballot. If we can now start marrying that with comfortable conventional understanding and processes. So now some states are requiring that even cannabis grows be GMP. Well, CGMP certification or that classification is a federal designation, right? So it's not as if the federal government can come into a grow now and say, oh, you're CGMP, you're not. But those parameters are built. So for example, the facility when, uh, on, our, on the other side of our business at Ilera Healthcare was built to be CGMP-like. So you're starting to see that slowly that collaboration is happening. That focus, we're bringing in the expertise from traditional pharma into the space. And we're also delivering the knowledge, the know-how, People continue to use the language anecdote. And I, the question I raise, I say to people, is it anecdote if it's happening right in front of me? I think we should change that, uh, that, that, uh, that word from anecdote to real-life empirical experience. So we're starting to deliver real-life empirical experience from the state programs across each state and in other parts of the world into an established and well-validated pharmaceutical model. Is it happening today? I bet you it is. You know, uh, Dr. Dara, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be a, a significant byproduct of this lawsuit is the human stories it's going to present. Um, coming into cannabis, you know, when, when we'd hear these truly, you know, and, and I don't use the word lightly, but miraculous stories about patients who experience phenomenal benefit from the use of cannabis. Um, when you hear the first two or three, you think, all right, maybe this is somebody who's got an agenda. Maybe this is uh, somebody who's just uh, 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 has, has an active imagination. When you hear 10 or 20, then the stories and the consistently starts to become more compelling. When you start hearing hundreds and then thousands of these stories, um, even as somebody who is trained to be a skeptic and who is trained, trained to, to look at data with, with a critical eye, uh, but the evidence that clearly something was happening uh, was overwhelming. And I don't say that as an advocate. I say that as somebody who is taking this quote-unquote anecdotal data. And so it's that, it's that avalanche of stories that I think have led to you know, more than half the country legalizing medical cannabis and now this vibrant global conversation that's happening. And I think it's precisely those experiences that are now catalyzing the investment to transition what has been a very rudimentary way of uh, clearly delivering medicine, having people smoke is uh, no one would expect would, would uh, view that as the most elegant way to deliver what is clearly uh, something that has therapeutic value. Uh, and it's catalyzing this transition to a more regimented, structured uh, and deeply capitalized model. Absolutely. I, I return. Thank you for raising that point. I return back to my personal story. So I was the cookie cutter raised. If you touch cannabis, there's a special place in hell. I mean, it's going to have your name on it. It's going to be branded. 
you know, yep. you're going to do all sorts of drugs because you tried cannabis. It's exactly. You open that gate, you will never, <laughs> yeah. ever come back from it. So I went through, you know, undergrad. Oh, my God. I People smoking weed. You can never find me there. Right. I, you know, I'm working on a project. I, I think I titled it, you know, stories I couldn't tell my family. And it was one of those stories until I was in grad school in biochemistry. I was working, you know, and I came to understand that I was suffering from insomnia. And I went to my doctors and they gave me Ambien. They gave me God knows what other names. And an old buddy of mine, older friend said, look, let me tell you what your future looks like. You're going to start with Ambien. Then after a while, they're going to say, oh, you maybe you're depressed. They're going to dump a bunch more on you. And they're going to tell you, oh, no, we need to balance your regimen. We need to calibrate your meds. Before you know it, you're going to have like five or six meds you're taking all of it. Or you could just smoke weed. And I go, devil, you know. This is three weeks to defending my thesis. But the, the breaking point for me was I had reached a point where I had not slept for about 72 hours. And I actually said the words, I'm going to die. Mind you, I say this against the background that I'm a PhD you know, uh, uh, a science research student and never tried cannabis before, never advocated for, in fact, I was a, if you use it, you're part of that group that's going to die, whatever it is. And I went to the doctor in California and I got a card and I went to a dispensary with the help of my friend, got a strain, smoked weed for the first time. And I slept well. It felt like five minutes, but I'd been asleep for about nine hours. And the next morning when I woke up, what I said was very simple. And that was the turning point. I said, I understand physiology and I understand, you know, my biomechanical response to a drug. I go, I've taken Ambien, I've taken all these other drugs. I know exactly what I felt. And I've taken this forbidden compound and I know exactly what I felt. Somebody, scientifically, help me please unlearn what I just learned. I have time. And for me, that was the beginning. And I'm still waiting. I've said it before. I've said, I have time. Come and help me. Let's engage in a conversation that helps me unlearn that what I experienced is a fluke. And since then, I became a scientific, data-driven advocate for the development of therapies based on that. And I'm just one person. We've gone on, we've done that with, with you know, hundreds of thousands of stories, like John said. So here we are again, having some of those same conversations. And I think this lawsuit would be another world stage to really bring those back to bear. And people can actually answer the question when they say, oh, there's no data. Uh, actually, there is a lot of data. Well, I, I, it kind of begs the question too. these kind of lawsuits bringing to light, you know, people that are making unsubstantiated claims, right? They're saying, oh, it can treat cancer and kind of maybe preying on people that are cancer patients that are desperate for a cure and will take anything, you know, could this kind of shake out the people that are like the snake oil salesmen, the, cause CBD still has, and, and cannabis has still so much research to go that some of these companies could be setting you back by making these outrageous claims that aren't true and aren't, don't have the research to back it yet. Unfortunately, we live in a world where people would take advantage of what is good or what should be good. But I think as, you know, we, we should continue to be that beacon of light. Yeah, uh, keep the research and, coming. So. Yeah, keep, keep, you know, for as much bad eggs as are there, um, there are people that are putting in real work and putting in, you know, real money 
to 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 to, to deliver validated, clinically validated um, information about this product. So I think it's a you know uh, my 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 people say uh, um, you don't clap with one hand, and a bird does fly with one wing. Um, you know, if you kind of think about that, I think there needs to be a coming together, both of the regulatory authorities, as well as those that are invested, whether it's, it be financially, but also scientifically, to bring about knowledge. Albeit, you understand, we have, as long as we're keeping the patients at the core of it, when somebody just comes out and says, this can cure cancer, it causes me to shiver. It causes my, you know, I, I, I get- And it sets you, know, you back, all the research that we've done, you know, in the industry. It's absolutely, absolutely. It, it does. It does. And, and that really, you know, keeps me up at night because you don't want one, as they say, right. You don't, we don't want to punish the entire industry because of the sins of if you want uh, that. Apple. Yeah. Yeah. That play. So <laughs> yeah. Let, we'll continue to have that balance between regulatory legal and real play and real, you know, real benefits potentially. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on um, to another story covered by actually the marijuana moment. Um, it's U.S. marijuana research policy violated international law for decades. DEA lawsuit memo reveals. So it looks like the current attorney general has proven to be much more open to scientific studies of cannabis. Dr. Adamosu, how do you think the Justice Department stands on expanding the number of manufacturers allowed for cultivation or to cultivate for research will impact the federal government approach to cannabis. Well, I'm going to make three points on that. If you can actually see my face, you will notice as you were reading that I was chuckling. The reason is because right before this session started, we were having some, uh, just some chit chat. And I said, let's call it what it is. Mr. Richard Milhouse Nixon and his coonies got together and you know the rest from there, right? So again, the reason we're having this conversation around prohibition is because of all the wrong reasons. But here we are. Um, uh, Mr. Jeff Sessions came out what I would call prematurely and said, we're going to do X, Y, Z. I'm not, a, I'm not, I have no political affiliations. Uh, I have, I, my disclaimer is I do not subscribe in this particular conversation to any political parties. But to the heart of the conversation, which is really, the Justice Department, I think the best move they can make is to play the role they're supposed to play, which is watch, guide, and provide recommendations. Um, and, and, and if they do that, they're going to help move the conversation forward. So for years, while on a national level, cannabis is illegal, University of Mississippi is allowed to grow a particular strain that my, you know, learned colleagues across the scientific space have said, we don't even want to touch that. It does not represent the, you know, the, the cultivar that we should be studying. And I think in a commendable move by the federal government, there's serious conversations around expanding access to the types of partnerships that delivers high quality products for studies. If they deliver on all of that, they would have moved the ball forward. And I think history would look back on the current administration if they deliver on that and would look back and say, what? You were a big part of changing the narrative. Changing the narrative today is very, very important. And I think we owe it. To, I mean, when I say we, I'm throwing us all in there. 
whether it's you know Republican or Democrat or the government, we owe it to the understanding. Again, these are real lives. These are real people. These are real patients. So we owe it to that to be able to provide the guidance. So uh, I would say to um, Attorney General Barr, if, he, if he, I ever had an opportunity, I would say history would look upon you with a smile if you commit to understanding the history behind the legalization of cannabis and then commit to being a part of changing the narrative. So that would be my, that's my comment. You made a really important point there, uh, Dr. Dari, in that the, the impact of having Mississippi be the only federally sanctioned facility to grow cannabis, I think has been multitude, but perhaps most consequentially is that they weren't producing gen either genetics that were appropriate for the research that researchers wanted to do, um, but not only were they making the process of applying um, really onerous, so it could take years to get approval, uh, and even once you got approved, uh, not only were the genetics not the right cultivars, but also the quality of what was being produced was far below what was even readily available from the market. So, you know, you know we've spoken at length with people like Sue Sicily, the first person who's uh, granted a, a, a federal grant to study PTSD amongst vets. And, you know, she was getting moldy, twiggy, seedy um, cannabis for her research. Entirely inappropriate for education. Uh, and this was seven years post the, the uh, announcement of her first uh, award. Um, really kind of uh, indicative of, of the several challenges baked into uh, the University of Mississippi being the singular kind of license holder for, for this permit. And while it is important that they have now, through this regulation, tried to open the door for more institutions to apply, one must also understand that for a lot of schools who are looking at the trade-offs, they're now wondering, well, if we apply for this, will this impact federal funding? Does this mean our federal funding? Yep. Our grants in other, in other areas. Um, and so there's a lot of interlinkages here in terms of how this policy is being administered that goes beyond just saying more institutions can apply. Uh, the federal government has to assure that uh, other apply, apply institutions aren't going to face sanction in other aspects of their federally engaged activities. To, um, you know, if all of these new institutions are growing exactly the same cannabis that's being grown in Mississippi, it doesn't solve the <laughs> fundamental problem that <laughs> genetics aren't the right ones for the research. And three, I think there's a huge opportunity for uh, public-private partnership in this. The amount of kind of cultivation expertise that's been, that's been developed on, in the private sector over the past 20 years of legal cannabis in the U.S., I think presents a phenomenal opportunity for knowledge sharing uh, uh, amongst these academic institutions and how to uh, uh, grow kind of highly precise cannabis at scale uh, with decimal precise uh, uh, genetic uh, profiles uh, to ensure that the appropriate um, uh, uh, profiles are available to the researchers who are trying to study the spectrum of this cannabis, uh, this plant's potential. Absolutely. And we thank you. Thank you very much for that. We've only just touched the surface. There's what? North of 100 cannabinoids. Look, the molecular geneticist in me is salivating literally all over myself. Like, oh, my God, just let me. Right. And I don't think I'm, you know, I'm one of the smartest people around now. Let the real smart people. I would argue with that. But please, carry on. <laughs> you know what I mean, John? Let the real smart people get their hands. And I promise you the world will be a better place. I will bet my mom's pension on it. So thank you. Thank you for raising that point. Institutions are waiting for the right directives. 
and the product can only make us better. That I know. All right. Thank you for that. We're going to move on to our last one because we're coming up on time. But um, our last story is reported by NASDAQ.com. Uh, Ghana legalizes cannabis, but only the hemp variety. Um, so these guidelines follow the standards for THC uh, concentration that exists in the 2018 U.S. Farm Bill. Um, do you see this trend extending to other sub-Saharan African countries that have um, like a more conservative take on cannabis? John, you want to go first? Because you know I'm chuckling on this one. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm actually doing this week's kind of week episode from, from Kenya, uh, where I'm from. And uh, this is my, I think, eighth trip in two and a half years uh, to the continent. And um, as somebody who never thought we would be, you know, talking about legal cannabis in Africa, um, or that there'd be a, a real conversation happening in places like Kenya, which have historically been phenomenally um, conservative, the speed with which this conversation has been evolving across the continent is phenomenal. There are already six countries that have legalized uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, variants of industrial hemp or medicinal cannabis. Uh, most have done so with the expectation that they're going to be serving international markets. Uh, but there's no question that there's a snowballing that's happening um, as um, stakeholders assess uh, the medical the potential the investment um, opportunity that this could represent, and particularly in catalyzing uh, economic growth uh, as, as uh, low-cost providers to serve international markets. Um, but the, on the industrial side as well, I think there's, there's a growing awakening about the breadth of applications for industrial hemp uh, that can have everything from hyper-local applications to truly international novel uh, uh, sector growth. Um, that I think is part of what's catalyzing this extraordinary conversation that's happening in Africa. And candidly, I think that if you look at the way cannabis has evolved in much of the Western world, where it's been a 20, 30-year conversation, uh, Africa is going to traverse that ground in five to 10 years uh, because it's not going to go through a long bureaucratic process. It's not going to go through uh, a, a long kind of cultural movement. It's going to take one or two strategically placed uh, influencers within government to decide that this is going to happen and the switch is going to get flipped. And so, you know, we think that over the next two to five years, um, this pace at which this industry is going to lay its foundation uh, is going to be far faster than we're going to see in many other continents. The industry will look very different than it does in the West. Uh, but I think there's going to be phenomenal opportunity both for locally based applications or locally oriented applications, as well as applications intended to serve the international marketplace. Yeah, I hope I'm not blowing John's cover here when I say this, that I said to John, this is almost a year and a half now. I said to John, I said when he when he first told me that he was really thinking about moving back to the continent, I almost wanted to go with him. I, you know, I, I said to him, I said, because we literally sit at the precipice of an accelerated experience. I mean, for everything that has happened, let me give, uh, so for those that know, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, for, for perspective. I'm Nigerian born. Uh, I like to say I'm Nigerian by birth and I'm, I am American by choice. So my, my birth country is Nigeria. And just think about the impact of separating right now the hemp and cannabis bill for criminal uh, prosecution is the same thing. So they catch you with a hemp product, catch you with a you know a marijuana product. Either way, you face it. The impact of literally just passing a bill and voting on a bill that that separates the two. 
let's start there and just think about the economic impact where people can make products, textiles, cement, I mean, go on and on and on from hemp. Even as a low-hanging fruit, right? Not to think about all the other medicinal, uh, you know, uh, and non, non-medical impact. I really think, and if, you know, I hope our leaders are listening, the expertise is available. We, as, as, uh, as uh, uh, um, the president of Rwanda said, look, Africa is the place that the world needs, not the other way around. So from us to us, Sub-Saharan Africa, I, I, I actually want to say thank you to countries like South Africa, like Kenya, and I know John has been a big part of that, that are really pushing the conversation forward. But, and Ghana now is really, really jumping on that bandwagon. And as you know, when, when you think about that, when you now start adding countries like Nigeria, by the time people like Nigeria jump on the board, that snowball effect that John is talking about, you will see it happen so quickly, you would almost be like, you know, don't blink. Because Africa is going to, the impact, if anybody remembers the impact of music in the last 10, 15 years on rewinding the consciousness of the youth to both entrepreneurship, to validation of possibilities, I think we have another opportunity here to kind of restart that, um, uh, that system again for the next generation. And I don't take it kindly. I don't take when people continue to apply the stigma that, oh, it's, you know, it's killing our people, it's, it's numbing our minds, then I should be dead. And I'm African, right? I'm Nigerian. So I stand, and I know John does too, stand on the shoulders of many, but we are ready. We are ready. Let's go. Let's work. To that end, what do you think, what countries do you think are going to be the leaders? Ah, from where I sit, I again, I, I salute South Africa. I salute, I think, uh, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. I salute Ghana. I salute Kenya. And I know John is working, is behind off on the continent. He needs support. Uh, we should rally behind what he's doing. I am calling on my country, Nigeria. Do not let this, as the giant of Africa, do not let this pass us by. We are supposed to be, you know, leading but let's join the wave. Who cares who's leading today? Let's all join hands together and make this happen. So I expect that uh, once uh, uh, Kenya, Ghana kind of roll out, the other countries like Egypt will probably fall in next. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing a little bit of guessing here, but I have, I have faith. I have faith. Good. John, do you agree with that or any, anything to add to that? I, I do. And, and I'll actually just add that one of the things that I think is really interesting is so part of the reason why so many countries are thinking about in Africa are thinking about this now is when you look at the rest of the global economy, most other sectors are fairly well cemented. You know, the, the winners have already been paid. Cannabis is one of the few sectors where it's emerging globally as a new sector. And there are very few places that have a well-established, well-intentioned competitive advantage, maybe outside of North America. And so particularly as you think about who the next low-cost provider m- might be, um, everyone is still at the starting line. And, and so it's still too early to pick the winners and losers. It's still too early to say who, the, who the, um, uh, the, the next great kind of market is going to be. Uh, but we think all of that is going to be decided in the next handful of years. And so to Dari's point, um, the, the countries that are waiting to, to make this decision um, are going to only be serving uh, to, to set themselves back on a race that is just beginning, but it's a race that's going to be raced very quickly. 
Um, so we don't know yet who the winners are going to be on this one, but we know it's uh, it's going to set up a, a phenomenal uh, economic growth opportunity. Um, and we think the countries that that approach this comprehensively, strategically, uh, and uh, with a mind not just for the international potential, but on how it can be used domestically, I think will be very well positioned for success in the years to come. I agree. Awesome. Well, I'd love to have you both back to discuss the front runners when the race gets a little tighter. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we're almost out of time. Any parting words for our listeners? Um, again, thank you very much for this opportunity. I don't take these kinds of opportunities for granted. Uh, we should continue to support uh, New Frontier data and, the, you know, Canada Week and several opportunities to, to speak, but also to strategize. To, uh, to move forward to executing and to measure how we're doing. I think when we do those things, uh, in, in any conversation, we are, we are moving forward. It's, it's important that we continue to keep the patients uh, from a medical perspective in, in view, but also to look beyond that to a much more global reach. I am completely committed to that. My company is uh, Zalira Therapeutics. We are completely committed to that. And we thank you for the opportunity to continue to do that. Well, the honor is ours. Thank you so much for being on here today. And John, anything to say before we say goodbye? Just a word of thanks to Dr. Dari. Your, your passion and your perspective uh, are both infectious and perennially illuminating. So uh, <laughs> thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us on this conversation. And we absolutely will be having you back to continue this one. Fantastic. Have a good day, everybody. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Canada Week. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. All of the stories that we covered here were on New Frontier Data's Cannabis Insights Daily. You can subscribe on our website, newfrontierdata.com. Thank you again. I'm your host, Heather Wickline, and I'll see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.